This morning we'll be considering together these final verses of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 to, to 39. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 to 39. The title of our sermon is The Need of Patience. The Christian life is a walk, and the Bible tells us so. Paul especially, in a variety of places, under, underlines the fact that it is a walk that we are engaged in, and it is both a long walk and a short walk in two different respects. When we think in terms of our day-to-day, week-by-week living, we recognize and feel keenly that it is indeed a long walk, that it is a walk that requires great endurance and, and perseverance. But if we zoom out from that perspective, just as if you were to zoom out from walking along the block in a, in a town, you zoom out and you realize that the distance covered over the period of our life is actually incredibly small. And set in contrast to the last 6,000 years and all that is done over that period, life is brief, life is short. It is, in that respect, a short distance and a short walk. But we find ourselves here and now in our current circumstances, and it seems long, indeed is long, and requires a great deal of, of endurance. It is like a marathon, if you will. And the Lord provides us, he provides his people everything that they need, every drop of grace, every ounce of strength necessary for every step, every tiptoe of the duration of that earthly pilgrimage. You'll remember how we've seen in Hebrews 10, the Lord does that both in terms of wooing us and encouraging us and enlivening and strengthening us. And he also does so by warning us with sober warnings that should terrify us in order to keep us on the straight and narrow, on the path that leads Unto life, And this is the Lord's way all the time. You'll remember, children, when Jesus, uh, prior to his uh, cross, he had that interview, interface with, with the Apostle Peter. And you see both of these things coming out there, right? He comes to Peter, and Peter's riding high in the saddle, and he's full of himself and has pride. The other disciples are like him. They're saying similar things to what he's saying. And the Lord tells him, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Peter protests, impossible, absolutely impossible. Never, ever will that happen in these circumstances. And the Lord warns them, the devil desires to sift you as wheat. There's the warning. There's the trembling. There's the watchfulness that should come as a result. But the Lord also woos him. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Right? It is... Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who now, seated on the throne of heaven, above the highest heavens in glory, continues to pray for his people. And it is his divine intercessions that preserve their faith and enable them to endure. The Christian life is a walk, and it is really walking uphill all the way. It's walking uphill all the way through, on top of that, treacherous terrain. And if that's not enough, it's through the midst of a battlefield. 
That's the Christian walk. And so perseverance is necessary. Perseverance which flows both from patience and, and faith. And so as we come to the end of this, this chapter, we're going to note two things in these verses, two primary points. First of all, there is a call to enduring confidence. And then secondly, there is a description of the eternal consequences. And so first of all, we have enduring confidence, the call to enduring confidence. Verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. So these three verses, enduring confidence. You'll notice that this is a continuation from where we left off, that the beginning of verse 35 is, is building on what we saw at the end of verse 34, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So knowing in yourselves these things, this should instill confidence, right? Confidence is uh, boldness, that attitude of, of liberty and boldness. If you look back at verse 19, it's translated, the same Greek word, as boldness, having therefore, brethren, boldness or confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of, of Jesus. So knowing, the believer knowing what he or she has in heaven, do not, we're told, throw away the boldness that God has given to you. Don't throw away that, that, that confidence. Don't throw it away in the context of that great fight of afflictions, in the midst of the, the, the storm of, of difficulty, in the midst of being in the fray of, of battle, and so on and so forth. You're to be free of fear. You're to have your eyes glued on what the Lord has promised you in heaven, and you are to continue in that boldness, not casting away your confidence. It's what's described in Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Children, the picture here of casting away your confidence, it's like, you know, being out on the sea in, in a ship and a huge storm comes. Maybe there's off in the distance a, a hurricane of sorts and so on. And the, the, the ship is being tossed all over the place like, a, like a, a little toy ship in the sea and the waves are crashing in over the, over the sides of the ship. And there's a concern, alarm amongst the mariners, right? The people who are on the ship that the ship is going to sink. And so what do they do? They begin to cast things overboard, right? They begin finding things that they can throw overboard in order to lighten the ship, to keep it from, from sinking. This is the picture that is, is given here. Cast not away your, your confidence. And it is precisely this temptation that comes in the midst of the great fight of afflictions, in the midst of, of sorrows, in the midst of loss, in the midst of shouldering great difficulties, the believer can begin to form an obsession with a solution, being obsessed with relief from those sufferings. 
And in the midst of all of the pressure, the, 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 the pressure that is exerted through the trials and through the afflictions and so on, they can be diverted, distracted from the confidence that the Lord has given to them of where all of this is going, where all of this is, is leading. And we can lose sight, our, our glasses, as it were, become fogged up, and we lose sight of the great recompense of reward, and we lose sight of the treasure that is provided for us in heaven and so on. And instead, we cast our eyes downward and we focus and dwell exclusively on the difficulty. We're absorbed with it. We're consumed by the difficulty. And it is precisely at that point that the temptation to cowardice comes, that the temptation to compromise comes. I can compromise in one degree or another, one way or another, in order to lighten or alleviate these sufferings. If we're suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can tone down the testimony that we're bearing or begin to play with principles, God's principles. Or in the midst of other types of suffering, we begin to, to, to entertain the fleshly temptations to, to do this or that or to excuse this or that in order to alleviate the suffering. And he's saying, no, no, in the midst of all of this, this is the temptation. The believer is called not to cast it away, not to throw away the confidence that the Lord has given them in all that has been provided in heaven, right? This confidence or boldness is the fruit of faith. It is that fortitude of heart, the courage, the hope, confident expectation that comes, that that whatever the suffering is, whatever the trial or affliction is, whatever and whoever the people are that may be involved in that, the believer is able to say to the trial or to the people, or at least to say to themselves, you have nothing. You have nothing that you can take away from me that matters most. We can say that to the affliction. We can say that to those who, who oppose us. You have nothing on me that you can take away that matters most. There is in heaven a better and an enduring substance. And so eyes, where are our eyes? Where is it that the eyes of the mind, the eyes of the soul, where are they? The eyes are to be glued, as the passage goes on to say, on the great recompense of reward. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. And so what happens is the believer is looking at this reward that's being described. That is what buoys them up amidst the storm. That is what carries them through the fires. That is what, by the grace of God and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that, that fills their whole field of vision. So that that so preoccupies them that the other is, unable to, is, is not able to unsettle them. We see an illustration of it in the next chapter, exact same langu language. Hebrews 11, verse 26, this is Moses, who has chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? How? What was going on here? What brought the prince of Egypt to abandon all that was given to him in order to be put down into the, the trenches of, of, of difficulty? 
verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in heaven, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. His whole field of vision had been filled with the sight of the treasure that is to be had in Christ and in heaven. And everything else, including all the opulence of Egypt, had no hold on him, could exert no sway over him. And so it's eyes glued on this better and enduring substance or this great recompense of, of reward. The Bible's full, and the New Testament especially, full of the doctrine of eternal heavenly rewards that God gives to his people. We know those rewards are not meritorious. They're not something that in our own strength we have earned and, and purchased, as it were, at, at our own cost, but they are rather gracious. The original cause of all of those rewards is God's divine and sovereign grace. And all of those rewards have been purchased and secured by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his great work. But perseverance is the means to inheriting them. Perseverance by the grace of God is the way, the, the path, the means through which the people of God obtain these. The Lord is a just God. And in all, of, all that he causes people to sacrifice and suffer, all that they lose, he in his justice does not leave them less than he found them. No, he comes with grace heaped upon grace. And having given them the strength and ability and grace to persevere, endure, walk in holiness, resist temptation, bear a good testimony, everything else, by the power of his Holy Spirit, he then opens the floodgates and showers abundant grace in rewarding them for what he enabled them to do. This is the Lord who comes in all of his riches to bestow upon his people. And of course, chief above all else, he gives his people himself eternally. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward, he says to Abraham. I am thy exceeding great reward. This will become relevant when we get to chapter 11 and considering Abraham. And so he who calls his people to suffering also promises to provide what is infinitely better than what you, my friend, could ever lose. He who calls you to suffer promises to provide what is infinitely better than anything and everything you could ever lose. And so in verse 36, he, he reinforces this point of enduring confidence. For we have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise, a need of patience. Notice that it begins with the word for. For ye have need of patience, right? The, the, the reward is only going to come by means of patience or perseverance or endurance. It is going to come through this way. Patience is that endurance, right? That steadfastness. We notice in chapter, we saw in chapter 6, verse 12, that ye be not slothful, right? Underlining human responsibility, as we find here at the end of chapter 10. So in chapter 6, verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience 
inherit the promise. And it's through faith and patience that the promise is ultimately inherited. There's to be the exercise of the believer's soul. There is to be continuance in all that the believer is called to before the Lord. And yet at every point, every turn, everywhere the believer looks, there is this inclination to grow weary in well-doing. We don't grow weary in evil-doing. We don't grow weary in terms of of, of the, the enticements of sin in the flesh, of course, biblically, spiritually, by the grace of God, the Christian is very weary of, of sin. But he says, don't, we're not to be growing weary in well-doing. There's a difference between those who begin well and those who end well. Right? These are two totally different things. It's one thing to begin the race, to enter the race well, with all sorts of gusto and energy and so on and so forth. It's another thing to have been sustained in that race after many, many steep climbs and many falls and, and, and bruises and batterings that have taken place. And yet that's what the Lord's saying. He's calling his people to end well. And the fact is that, that with that endurance comes an increase of spiritual strength. If you never get off the couch and walk around the block, you're never going to grow stronger. And you're going to have to walk more than around the block. You're going to have to learn to walk a mile and two miles. But you know what? As you add the miles, you continue to gain strength in the process. And here's the Lord. He, in his infinite wisdom, knows that the Christian needs stress. The Christian needs suffering. Christian needs trials and afflictions in order to exercise them, in order to increase their strength, in order to further their endurance, to deepen their patience before the Lord. If the believer were found without affliction, you know, those who, who have no affliction would be flabby, weak Christians, atrophy of all of the spiritual muscles, if you will. That's what would happen. The Lord says, no. He calls us to the need of patience, to continue on, and to do so all the way through. He says, after ye have done the will of God, right? Patience and endurance all the way through, so that after ye have done the will of God, Notice here, the passage does not say, after ye have known the will of God, you'll inherit the promise. He doesn't say after you've known it. You must know it, of course, to do it. But he says, after you have done the will of God. The accumulation of knowledge is not an end in itself. Theological acumen, biblical precision, understanding your principles. No, that's not what he says. After you've done it, walking in holiness, in the holiness of God's commands. After you've done the will of God, the will of God is his revealed will, his word, his law, right? His commandments, his 
holy scriptures, as she walked in accordance with what he has said. What he reveals to us in his word is to be believed. Yes, must be received with faith and meekness. It must be believed and practiced. Not just allegedly believed. Wherever it is truly believed with saving faith, it will lead to practice, to doing what God's will has, has said. And so he says, for, for ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. And here, receive the promise is a reference, and this is common in the New Testament, to, it's speaking of the thing promised, right? Because in a sense, you would say to yourself, we have the promise. We had the promise from the start. We had the promise before the start of the race, right? We're in possession of the promise immediately. We have the promise. Here it's speaking of the thing promised, right? The fulfillment of the promise, the, 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 the possession of all that God has pledged to give to us. In other words, the promise is parallel to the previous verse in the language of the great recompense of reward. The promise is the great recompense of, of the reward. And so the Lord says, after you've walked with patience, done the will of God, you will receive this recompense of reward. You'll receive the thing that I've, I've promised. You go back to chapter 9, verse 15, and there we're told what the promise is. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Really, we've been hearing all the dimensions of what this promise entails throughout our study of the book of, of Hebrews. But here, in good summary, it is the promise of eternal inheritance. This is what the Lord has said. This is not something that's a probability. It's not if you run the race, then this may happen. It's not just a possibility of what could be achieved in the end. There is, in blood earnest, certainty about this. That those with patience who endure shall indeed come into the full possession of all that God has pledged to his people. This eternal inheritance, all the treasure trove that is laid up in heaven, all that Christ has gone to prepare for his people, all that that, that that is untouchable by moth and rust and thieves and anything else that could diminish it, all of the rewards that God has, has laid in store for his people, glory and all that comes with it in the joy of heaven itself. He says, this is absolutely certain. You can be more confident of it then you are confident that you're sitting in your pew this morning. Notice the reward and promise are held together, which further underlines the graciousness of God bestowing rewards on his people. And so there's this enduring confidence. But then verse 37, we zoom out, if you will. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. I said that the Christian life is like a long walk and a short walk. 
in the, in the midst of it all, it feels like a long walk. Indeed, it is, in many respects, a long walk, one that requires persevering endurance and patience each step of the way. But we can also zoom out, and that's what verse 37 is doing, right? It's zooming out, as it were, and he's saying, yet a little while, just yet a little while. And this, too, strengthens perseverance. This, true, uh, deepens our patience before the Lord for, for the Christian. We're quote, he's quoting here from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, which we read earlier in the service. You say, well, how is that? How is how is the fact that it is, in one respect, only a little, a little longer, a little while, how is that helpful to perseverance? Well, you know in your own experience this, right? Child is sitting in, the, in, the, in their high chair at the table, and it's like war to get them to eat the food that's on their plate. And there you are, shoveling it in one after another. And you get to a point where you're able to say to the child, only two more bites. You only have to do two more bites. And all of a sudden, the child becomes far more willing, right, to take those last, last two bites. Or you're, you're unloading a moving truck. You finally see the back wall. And you turn to your friend and say, well, there's only two more boxes. Right? There's a sense of being energized, of being strengthened. Okay, we can get this done. We can finish this. Right? We can multiply illustrations. You know it in your own, your own experience that a sense of something being close is a great help to us to strengthen that, that perseverance. Literally, the text says, for yet a very, very little while. For yet a very, very little while. There's a sense in which things are closer than, than you realize. You know, as I like to say, and many of you have heard me say, it won't be long now. It's a great encouragement to us. It won't be long now. By that meaning, there's not much left. Time will be up. We'll finish our race. We'll cross the, the, the finish line. Our bodies will be laid, laid in the grave, waiting the resurrection. Our souls taken, perfected in holiness, brought into the presence of Christ. It won't be long now. Just a little longer. He says... For yet a little while. This strengthens the patience and perseverance because there's this hope of a speedy completion of the Lord bringing it all to its culmination, right? When you're, you're running a race, what happens? Most runners pick up their pace at the end of the race, right? You think everything's done, they're spent, tanks empty, and yet it's at the end of the race, that when you can see the finish line, you pick up your pace and you begin to just all out, holding nothing back, sprinting to the end. This is the picture that the Lord's giving to us. And we get it everywhere. I mean, we sing about it in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 30, I think, verse 5, where it says, For his anger endureth but a moment, and in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. That sort of theme is found throughout the, the book of, of Psalms that we, we sing. Or you think of the end of, some of you will remember in our exposition of, of Romans, the end of Romans chapter 16, verse 20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Or the passage we referenced 
Last Lord's Day, uh, from uh, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We could multiply these passages, couldn't we? Where the Lord is coming along and he's saying, I realize in the warp and woof, down in the details, all of the struggles, the battles, the, the blood, sweat, and tears that, is, that accompanies the, the Christian's pilgrimage and the, the, the Christian walk and race that the Lord has given to us. But look up, zoom out, and you'll realize the distance is so small. It is but a little longer. And here, specifically in Hebrews, what is he referring to when he says, yet but a little while? He's referring, of course, to the coming of our Lord. And in, so the language says in verse 37, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the Bible speaks of Christ's coming in a variety of different ways. Right? He comes to us in his ordinances. He comes to us in a variety of ways. But here he is speaking of the second coming of the Lord. And we, we see that, for example, because it picks up on what he says at the end of the previous chapter. In chapter 9, verse 28, So Christ was once offered uh, to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It's saying, are there things that have to be fulfilled in terms of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, clearly, unequivocally, there are. We don't believe in the imminent return. Jesus is coming back any second. His word has to be fulfilled. There are things that have to be done. But he's saying that coming is soon. That looking at it in this, this manner of, of, as I say, zooming out, the Lord is showing to us the brevity of time. And that, that striking that note on the brevity of time, which is so... Uh, savory in many ways and so sanctifying in other ways for us. Striking that note of the brevity of time is needed both in times of painful affliction, which is the context here, but mark my words, also in prosperity. The brevity of time needs to be brought to the fore of our minds both in painful times as well as in prosperous times. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 brings both of these things to the fore on this very point. Why do I say that? Because in times of prosperity, we think, well, this is it, and this is wonderful, and we're consumed with it. We think this is, this is uh, so, this is, we, we, we've arrived in a small way in times of blessing and prosperity. And then the Lord brings back to the fore. The brevity of time. This too is fleeting. This too is passing. This too is slipping, as it were, through our fingers. This too will be over soon. Sober up. Let's be watchful and circumspect. Not to, not to diminish our gratitude to God and our thankfulness and worship, to, worship of him and the mercies that, he receives to a, that we receive from him. But let us not be deterred from having the big thing set before us. The prize is not these little points of prosperity, these little seasons of blessing and so on. While tokens of God's kindness for which we adore him, they're not the prize. They're not the trophy. They're not the end. 
And indeed, they're like a fistful of sand in comparison to the prize. We need an obsession with that eternal inheritance set before our eyes in all of our conditions and in all of our circumstances. Here it's in the context of suffering. Here it's in the context of the spoiling of your goods and all of the other things that have taken place. And we're reminded in verse 37, in this, this enduring confidence, deliverance is often nearest when it is least expected. Right? The, the kind of proverbial image of it is always darkest before the dawn. Right? right when it seems that the very darkest is just prior to when the dawn comes. And so it is even in our little micro afflictions and trials that the Lord gives to us. So often in the midst of, of those great difficulties, deliverance is closer than you ever expected. Maybe the Lord bringing relief, delivering you out of it, giving you strength, providing help in the midst of it, eliminating it entirely. I mean, there's at some point, the relief is going to be snatching you out of this world, free of sin and sorrow forever, delivered in that ultimate sense. And so the point is, for yet a little while, right, this too fuels enduring confidence in the Lord. Time is short. Eternity is long. And that really brings us to our, our second point. We have enduring confidence, but then we have eternal consequences. Verses 38 and 39, eternal consequences. And here he continues to quote from Habakkuk chapter 2. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We hear those words, the just shall live by faith. We think of justification by faith. And we immediately think, rightly, we immediately think of forensic justification, right? That act of, the, 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 of God in declaring the sinner righteous and clothed with the righteousness of Christ and pardoned and cleansed from all of their sins and so on, which is received by faith alone. All of that is, is true. But here the emphasis is actually on living by faith. Right? You have to be justified by faith first in order to live by faith, which is sanctification. But the emphasis is falling on this part, on living by faith. And really, this is introducing to us what we're going to spend a long time on in the whole of chapter 11, right? He is here introducing this concept of living by faith as preparation for then delving deep into all that that entails and all the illustrations drawn from the Old Testament scriptures with, with regards to it. Living by faith. You think of the language of Galatians 2, Verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it's continuing to live by faith, believing the Lord's word and promises, trusting in him, constantly walking by 
by faith. And so you have both patience and faith being brought together here, right? You have a need for patience and you have a need for, for faith. And really, patience in some ways is the fruit of faith that comes from it, right? This trusting in the Lord, leaning upon the Lord, drawing by faith upon all the resources that are in the Lord Jesus Christ or what fuel patience. And so the call to initial faith to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive and rest in him alone for our salvation is really a call to persevering faith as well. The two can't be separated. The two come together. Both salvation, initial, and service, ongoing service before the Lord. In other words, you can't have Christ as your Savior and not have him as your Lord. That's impossible. You can't cut Christ asunder. You can't divide him up and take pieces you like and dispose of pieces you don't. I want someone to save me from, my, from hell and the consequences of my wickedness, but I don't want one who's going to be a king that rules over me and under whose lordship I must abide. No, it's impossible. The gospel presents the whole Christ, and you can only receive all of Christ or none of Christ. And so this, this call to initial faith leads to this persevering faith as well. And we're told, if, if any, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. If any man draw back, if any shrink back, any who do an about face, who turn away from the Lord, those who turn back indeed and who continue in apostasy, will most certainly perish. They will perish. And so here, perseverance is again being backed. It's being backed by a warning, the warning about the guilt and the danger of, of apostasy. You know, those who are tempted to think, well, I want to escape the cross. I don't want to take up my cross. I want to do it. I want to sidestep the cross, right? I, I don't want to be concerned about denying myself every day. I, I don't want to have to bear the reproach of the world. The Lord says those who seek to avoid those things or to lose those things will actually lose everything. That's what Jesus says, right? Jesus says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. You try to do an end run around all that the Lord calls us to in terms of the call to persevering faith, you lose not only the promise, you're ultimately destroyed. That's what this passage says. Notice God's response. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Those who draw back, who shrink back, who turn back, become an object of God's abhorrence. God abhors those who turn back. He has no pleasure in them. And so now, how does it look? How does it look for those of you who are tempted, those of you who are unconverted and those of you who are believers and you're, you're tempted, right? The world comes and you, you hear the message, right? It's, 
there are three things you, you desperately need to get at all costs. You need possessions, you need, popu- you need power, and you need popularity. You need these three things. These three things deliver. They will bring satisfaction. That this is where it's at. This is where all the happiness is to be found. Having loads of possessions, having power, and having popularity among the eyes of men. My friends, think about this. All three of those vanish at death. All the possessions, gone. All the power, gone. All the popularity, gone. They're all wiped away at at death. It eliminates them all. But here's the flip side. What does the Lord promise? Not what the world's promising you. But the Lord comes and says, I will give a better and an enduring substance. You will be given an inheritance that will blow your mind. Far better than anything the most rich and famous ever knew in this world. Here's an eternal inheritance that is to be had in my son, through and with and by my son. And having my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to talk about power? The believer will sit enthroned with Christ and judge angels. That's power. You want to talk about popularity? Who cares what the sons of Adam think? The Lord will delight himself in the believer. The Lord will say, this is mine. He's mine. She's mine. The Lord will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What can compare to that? Nothing can compare to that. The world has all of its fakes, right? It's like the Chinese knockoffs. You know, these $2 Rolex watches that they'll sell you for 30 bucks on the streets of Manhattan. The world has that. But the Lord's coming with substance to us. For those of you who are unconverted, this passage is serious business. Any man who draws back my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Right here you are this morning and you're sitting in the ambient light of gospel truth. You're walking within the realm of where the light is shining. And the Lord is warning you. And he's saying, if you turn back to darkness, rather than running to my son, who is the light of the world, I will have no pleasure. I will abhor you. If you choose the terms of peace with the world and opposition to God in your stubborn rebellion, you will perish. There's nothing fuzzy about this. There's nothing for you to hide behind in terms of something being confusing about this. This is clear as crystal. Not coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance and bowing and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ results in catastrophic loss, right? You have, as always, you have life and death that are being set before you. And in the gospel, the Lord is coming and saying, choose life, run to life, come to the light, receive the life, the eternal life that is to be found, that is set before you. 
But be certain of this. For those in all of your choices, in your choices to sidestep, ignore, look the other way, postpone, put off, or ultimately draw back from the claims of the gospel, in your choices, you, you yourself, are choosing self-destruction. And in that sense, on the last day, you get what you wanted. You wanted a world without Christ's gracious countenance and favor. And you'll get it. There's nothing fuzzy about this. The Lord gives us a solemn warning here. But notice that he says in verse 39, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Look at the, the, the pastoral care that is, that is provided here. You know, we are not of them who draw back to perdition. Perdition, children, is destruction. Perdition is ruin. Perdition is damnation. Perdition is a word for hell. He says, we're not of those who draw back unto, unto this dreadful, terrifying, mind-numbing thought of eternal damnation. No, instead he says, we are not of them who do so. Right, he is, he's doing what he did in chapter 6, right after he warned about apostasy. Remember that sobering chapter, uh, that so, sobering section in chapter 6? Right after it, he says in verse 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Right? He is thinking the best. And this is an important note for us. You know, those who are walking with a profession of faith, uncontradicted, credible profession of faith, we ought to be thinking the best. You know, do we, does any of us know whether a person's regenerate or not regenerate? No, we can't see that. But we ought to be thinking the best of our, our brethren. And so what he's doing is he's describing what must happen, what will happen in apostasy. That's what he's describing. He's not describing what would happen to all of those to whom he wrote. This is what will and must happen in the case of apostasy, not what would happen to all those that he wrote. We need to beware. We need to beware. We need the warnings. We need to believe them and receive them. We need to be cautious about stepping off the path, even a toe width. We can't be stepping off the path because it's that divergence from the Lord's path. You don't know where it's going. There have been those who thought, I'm just stepping off a little bit. And that path has taken them straight into the depths of hell. We don't know. We're not to step off the path. This is true, by the way, not only personally, but corporately. It's true in the text here that's being applied specifically to individual people like you and me. It also is applicable corporately to the church at large. I mean, to this congregation. The Lord has given us a body of truth. He's given us a testimony. And he's saying, children, don't step off this path. Because corporately, the same thing can happen. There is undoubtedly going to come a day, I hope, long, long, long time from now, when there will be a man in the pulpit and elders in the session room or others 
who will say, we can step off here. Let's just venture out, broaden out a little here. Let's, let's let loose, let's let go of this. Let's, let's, okay, we believe that, but let's not talk about that. Let's not preach this particular truth or that particular truth. Lord warns us there, right? Look at the history of the world, all of the churches that have ended up dead and empty with Ichabod over the door. It's true corporately too. And children, I hope that as God gives you grace and you come to faith in Jesus Christ and grow up in maturity in him, that you will be numbered among those who when you are old, you are challenging the children in your day that they must hold fast that the Lord has, has, has given to us. He says, if any man draw back. But the fact is that no true believer can or ever will draw back unto perdition. No true believer in a state of grace ever can or will. You know, are we going to say that God's grace saves, but it cannot save in these cases? It cannot save for sure. Well, if God's grace can't save for sure, then what will? God's grace does save for sure. Are we going to say that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ can be defeated? A million times, no, never. What Christ has purchased at the cross is absolutely, unbudgeably secure and dying for his elect people. Are we going to say that God is God, but he's not sovereign and that his grace isn't sovereign? To redeem, save, and keep, and glorify a people for himself? Are we going to say that the Father, who has, who has promised many things to the Son, he says, I've given you a people, I've put them into your hand, I'm giving you these as your inheritance and heritage and so on. Are you prepared to say that Christ is going to lose any of his reward? That any of those placed into his hand are lost? If any of those are lost, he loses part of the reward the, the Father promised him. Impossible. We could come at this from a million different angles, couldn't we? But at the end of the day, as Jesus says, they shall never perish. Those in a state of grace shall never perish. And so for the believer, it's not damnation. It is salvation. But of them that believe to the saving of the soul. My friend, you are a soul. You were one time a little baby like this. Maybe now you're grown to a full adult. You don't look like you used to look. Your hair is gray and it used to be a different color, right? You, you used to have muscles that you don't have now. You know, perhaps you've, you know, people lose limbs and other things. All sorts of changes happen. But you're the same person through all of that. You are a soul. And the Lord is speaking here of the salvation of a soul, that, that his people have been saved, are being saved, will be saved. And the cause is God's sovereign grace. But the means is perseverance that he calls us to. Right? He says, Peter says, you're kept by the power of God. What's more firm than that? By faith, he says. Both are held together, preservation and perseverance. God's grace and, and sustaining his people and God's grace and enabling them in the call to, to endure, right? In dependence upon God, we need patience so that in dependence upon God, drawing upon his grace, the help of his Holy Spirit, 
we will indeed persevere. Because it's only depending upon him that will kill all the sinful cravings that we are presented with. And so the passage calls us to set Christ and to set heaven and to set the eternal inheritance before your face. Always. Not just, you know, every couple of months we take a glance and think about the inventory that is in heaven. No. He says you're to keep this before your face always. You are to be obsessed with this, with Christ himself, with the glory of heaven, with the eternal inheritance that he has has given to us, and then walk day by day in the confidence, in faith and hope and patience and perseverance, in dependence upon the Son of God. In other words, stop looking. Stop. Stop looking at all of the temporal costs that come with a commitment to Christ. Why? Because your confidence about the future will supply endurance for the present. Your confidence about the future will indeed supply endurance for the present. And so we have a need for patience. Christian life is a walk. It's a long walk requiring endurance, but it's also a short walk given the brevity of time. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, give to us eyes to see by faith thy glory, to see the glory that yet awaits thy people, the one who has promised to us that we are kept by the power of God unto salvation through faith. O Lord, give, we pray, that we indeed would see our need for patience and that by the Spirit we would grow in that perseverance and endurance. Enable thy people to end well. We ask, O Lord, that it would be not only for our own sense of strength and help, but as always, we pray it chiefly for the glory that redounds to Jesus Christ through every one of his sinful, redeemed people we're brought home to him in glory, for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.